This episode is brought to you by Margie Lamb, health coach and founder of Healthy and Hustling. Are you fed up with the dieting and the seemingly contradictory health advice out there? Do you want to feel great in your body and accomplish your goals in a way that's empowering and not overwhelming? For me, the answer was an easy yes. Five years ago, I was pushing 200 pounds. I worked out twice a day and counted my calories. I didn't really see a movement on the scale nor my body type. So I decided to check my ego and call up a health coach. Margie, as a certified integrative nutrition health coach, works with each client as a guide and mentor to build a healthy, sustainable lifestyle that will help you reach your health goals. She offers free one-hour initial consultations. To learn more, visit her website, www.healthyandhustling.com. That's www.healthyandhustling, spelled H-U-S-T-L-I-N dot com. Have you ever scrambled with thoughts on how you were going to entertain your guest at your big event or a big event that you were hosting? Why not treat your amazing guest with live music? Allow me to personally recommend to you a saxophonist that's guaranteed to bring his best every time he performs. Verl Tolbert is his name. His bilanguage, his enthusiasm, his smile will tell you his story. Verl played at my wedding and he was also a guest on this podcast, episode number four. A natural entertainer and talented musician, Verl T, the perfect choice for all events and special occasions, playing smooth jazz, R&B, neo-soul, blues, pop, and gospel music are his passion. Saxophonist Verl Tolbert is from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and has been playing saxophone for over 15 years. Allow Verl T to help make your event something super special. For booking information, navigate to verlt.com. That's Verl spelled V-E-A-R-L, the letter T, dot com. You're listening to Defining Moments Podcast. This is episode number 15 with Mary Bruce. Mary's love for her family is undeniable. Her passion for music, life, is evident. In this episode, Mary takes you on a journey deep into her life, a series of moments that are very personal and trying. Listener's discretion is advised. I'd like to acknowledge my wife for making this podcast amazingly unique and super special, and to our guest that has taken the time and gathered up courage to come share their story to the world. Hi everyone, my name is Wong Lam, your host of Defining Moments Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Each podcast, I bring on a family member, a colleague, a friend, a guest that has submitted their defining moment and has agreed to come onto the podcast to share it. A defining moment is a moment that either you define or you let the moment define you. We go through many of them in life. Perhaps your moment was a struggle that led you to your moment of greatness or led you to contribute to society the way that you do. Emily Dickinson once said, They might not need me, but they might. I let my head be just inside. A smile as small as mine might be precisely their necessity. How did cockroaches lead you to clarity and freedom that you desperately needed? Imagine yourself in a moment that you had no control over. What did you do? Did your fairy tale relationship make you stronger? 
She's an engineer, children's minister. She's also on the board of the Annie Oakley Society for the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. Mary, Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Wong, I'm so glad to be here. I'm very excited for you to be here. It's uh, This is really cool because you happen to be my fiance's best friend. And starting this podcast on episode two, she mentioned that I should try to get you to come onto the podcast and share one of your defining moments. I know. And you've been asking me for a while now, and I was praying about it and trying to figure out what was the right one to start with. Yeah. And so I'll share a little bit. And I hope that the listeners find something in here that they can glean and apply to their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's really unique about your friendship and Margie's is, you know, I, when I first met Margie, she told me about you. I was like, Hey, I, I, I know of Mary Bruce and soon to find out you guys did so many things together. You were at her triathlons. You were standing on the heat hundred degree weathers, watching her bike. And she flew to different States to watch you, uh, sing and compete. That's true. Yeah, and I I remember actually going to watch you uh, sing for the first time. Is I think it was in the stockade stockyard area, in Oklahoma City. Yep. And I thought that was really really neat that you do that. And what I find really really cool about the whole thing is not only was Margie there, but your family. You know, you had your mom, your dad. And you have a very big family. You're one of 12 siblings, is that correct? That's right. (laughs) I have five brothers and six sisters. That is a huge family. How Growing up, what is that like? It was a unique experience. I mean, I honestly wouldn't trade it for the world because I'm the middle, middle, middle child. And I say that because I'm the eighth out of the 12. (laughs) I'm the fourth out of seven girls. Yeah. And I'm about 12 years younger than the oldest and almost 12 years older than the youngest. So there's 23 and a half years difference between the oldest and the youngest. So I feel like I got the best of all the worlds and got to see really everybody grow up. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what it's like for the people on either end of the spectrum, but for me, it's been a lot of challenges, but also Mm -hmm. a lot of joy and, you know, kind of being able to you know, build friendships and relationships with my siblings and grow with them. Right. So I love it. That's important. And lots of birthday cakes too, probably. Not as many as you would think. We had, (laughs) we kind of combined birthdays if they were in the same month. So it makes sense. So it was, it was kind of like a joint birthday every, every month or so. Yeah. 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 What, uh, what led you into singing? Actually singing is probably one of my other defining moments. Um, so if you if you ever want me to come back, I'll probably <laughs> you know might talk about that a little bit more. But okay. in brief synopsis, um, I actually didn't really sing in public until five years ago. Mm-hmm. I had a sister growing up who is absolutely one of the most phenomenally gifted musicians and singers. Yeah, just naturally so, and so she was the singer. She was the musician, and so I lived in her shadow. I was her biggest fan biggest groupie she she wrote music and we would sometimes collaborate on lyrics and Mm. you know but she was really the person yeah and she kind of gave it up one year Mm. and i remember leaving when she said hey i I don't know that i'm going to do this anymore yeah i was just like god 
if you ever give me a gift like that, I'll I'll do something with it. Yeah. I'll go through whatever door is open. Yeah. And yeah, about five years ago, I started singing. So you're a singer and you're also an engineer. That's true. Yeah. I, was, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> left brain and right brain. And it's really cool and really unique how you're able to do that. I don't know. I feel like the creativity aspect of engineering is what drew me into it. Yeah. Um, but I've always been able to fix things and figure out how things work. Yeah. So growing up, that was kind of one of my roles in the family was going in and fixing broken things. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was about 10 years old, um, we had a fan like, and I will admit the house I grew up in, (laughs) there was no central heat and air. Yeah. So there, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas and it gets really hot. So we had all these fans (laughs) And the one that we really liked, it stopped working all of a sudden. And I remember as a 10-year-old going into my dad's tools and getting everything and took everything apart and figured out where the wiring was that didn't work, Mm -hmm. replacing that, and then getting the fan put back together and starting it up and just feeling so excited that I'd fix something. Yeah. And it was kind of in some of those things that I was like, well, I think I'll follow in my brother's footsteps and become an engineer yeah so that's cool i can definitely appreciate that yeah. <laughs> and so you're uh, also a children's minister yeah right now um that that's been about six weeks yeah of helping out at a new church mm-hmm. and my whole life and and i'll kind of expand on some of my background a little bit later but yeah. um i've just loved helping people and particularly kids and this opportunity opened up and for anybody who knows me I don't stick around anywhere that I live on the weekends so my (laughs) weekends have been my thing and go visit my family go visit friends and so when it was first brought up I wasn't sure what I thought about it and then I went to go visit the church and Mm. that very first Sunday that I visited I ended up actually leading children's church (laughs) And it was, I just felt like I belonged and I had a conversation with the pastor and, and I'm, I'm currently, you know, kind of a temporary children's minister and then we'll reevaluate it in February. But I absolutely love it every weekend being able to instill that in, you know, my faith in these kids' lives and enrich it. And so, yeah, I love it. How old are these kids? Um, there's five kids on any given Sunday. Um, we've had up to nine, but it's typically five to nine years old. Five to nine years old. That's, uh, that's really impressive to keep their attention. It's, I have to be high energy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Right. You you definitely got to change your tone of voice. You got to have a lot of body movement, a lot of interaction. So their eyes are fixated on you. And so if you're just standing there. And your mouth is moving. They're going to be like, hmm. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> well, trust me. We we make sure we build in wiggle time, too. So, <laughs> you know, about every 10 minutes, there's something that makes them get up and move around. So yeah. that's kind of how I keep that managed is just teach them a little bit, make sure they have can burn off some energy, yeah. teach them some more, burn off energy, and then end up with just celebrating the day and what we've learned. That's awesome. I uh, I've always wondered how... Uh, a minister, especially a children's minister, keeps 
kids' attention because at that age you would figure they just want to kind of run around. But if you're able to captivate them like that and include the quote-unquote wiggle room, then that, that does. That holds their attention a lot longer than, you know, just staying there talking. It's just like adults, honestly. <laughs> Let's be real. If you're in a meeting and it's taking too long, all you want to do is get up. And even if you're able to just stand up, yeah. how much more effective would some meetings be if they were two hours long and you just had a couple breaks in there where you said, okay, we're going to stand up and walk around the room one time. Yeah. And then you may not even leave the room, but that amount of energy just from getting up and getting motion. Yeah. And feeling like you're part of something different. Mm -hmm. That's enough to bring that energy back. That's and, true. And, you know, help you learn, help you experience what's going on. Mm -hmm. And we don't think about that as adults, how much we need that wiggle time too. Yeah. To absorb information and also to share information. Oh, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And that's actually a really good idea to incorporate into meetings. My meetings, when I go in and I present, I go with clarity and intention. You know, I'm clear about what I'm going to present, and here's my intention on what I'm going to present. Mm -hmm. It's pretty direct, and so I don't have those two-hour meetings, but if I do, I'm going to have to incorporate that standing up and yeah. walking around. And I feel like a meeting should only be about 40 to 45 minutes before you have some form of a break Yeah, just to allow yourself the mental break mm -hmm. for even just a minute. Yeah, absolutely. It's mentally draining to me the, uh, presenting in front of an audience. It, it doesn't matter if it's two or 25 or 200. To me, it's mentally yeah. draining. It can be, depending <laughs> on what the topic is. I mean, if it's something you're passionate about, it's energizing as long yeah. as the crowd is yeah. energizing back and interested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's key. The communication part of it, right? The verbal and nonverbal side. Yes. So... Mary, how do you contribute to society? Well, other than being a children's minister, yeah. I have helped out at pretty much any volunteer event that I have time for. Mm -hmm. um, that includes helping out at special needs shows. Um, I used to go out and do fundraising for Toby Keith's OK Kids Corral nice. and the Children's Miracle Network. I have literally stood on street corners singing for change yeah, and raised money and sold raffle tickets. Um, and currently I help with the Annie Oakley Society. I'm on the Young Leadership Board mm -hmm. and we are currently doing fundraising to help build a new outdoor educational experience for wow. kids and families. And yeah. it will be amazing. Yeah. And we're hoping to do some groundbreaking next year. That's awesome. So... Like I said, any opportunity I have to give back, I try. Yeah. What's the educational experience for this? So it'll be at the National Cowboy Western Heritage Museum. Uh -huh. And we are planning on building an entire outdoor exhibit where there's stations where you can experience yeah. the past history and learn about, you know, in a more interactive fashion, mm -hmm. what was life like? Yeah. For the people who settled this country and right. who actually lived here beforehand and what yeah. what all can we learn from our past? That is awesome. That's you know, I, I love history. You become better when you know your history. Right. And you can always how how do I make things more efficient? How do I become smarter? How do I communicate with people? It's it's very interesting and 
you know, I, my grandma is actually from Germany and wow. she lived in Germany during World War II. She is half Jewish. Wow. Um, her mother was full Jewish. Uh-huh. And so she understood what was coming and how important yeah. knowing our past is and being able to avoid those same pitfalls in the future. Exactly. The quote is, if you do not know your history, you are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> and so true. And she instilled in us just a great love for learning and a great love of history. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, when she came to the United States, she became, she got a master's in history. Wow. And she helped teach us growing up. So um, she taught us history, English, yeah. and foreign languages. Wow. That's so, fascinating. Yeah. She's a, Amazing woman. Yeah, sounds like it. I also find this fascinating is you use your your voice to contribute to society by staying on the corner, singing for change. I mean, just anything helps, right? All it takes is one person yeah. doing something. And you may think that you don't have anything to contribute. You may think that you know, what difference does one person make? But if you look at your past, it is made up of single people mm-hmm. saying something or doing something that impacted you to become the person that you are today. Yeah. And you may not think that you can change world hunger or kids cancer or anything that's on a grand scale, but it just takes one person having mm-hmm. faith and having hope and right. being the inspiration. You may not be the person that actually solves cancer, mm-hmm. but you may inspire the person who, who finds the solution. Yeah. And that's where losing hope for me is something that just doesn't cross my mind. Right. Because if we lose hope in our future, if we lose hope in ourselves, then Really, what is the point? Mm-hmm. But if we can look around and say, we will impact one person today and make their day better. Mm-hmm. By the time that your life is over, think about how many days you have lived and that is how many people you have impacted. Right. Yeah, that's that's solid. That's really awesome. I, I resonate with that quite well. You know that I coached boys competitive soccer and... I always told the boys that you've got to play to the final whistle. It doesn't matter if you're losing five nothing or two nothing or because you always got to have that, that faith and that hope that you are actually going to score or you're going to do something well in a moment, in the last minute of the game, you may not win that match, but you do something that could translate into your next practice into school, right? Yeah. The body language. I mean, if you're losing two nothing, you're walking with your head down you know, it's obvious what's going to happen, but you're losing to nothing. You're walk and you're running around. You're, you're uplifting your teammates. That's a positive change. And that's a good spillover. It is. And to me, going into something with a positive attitude, yeah, it may be the most difficult day of your life, mm-hmm. but going in and having that positive attitude, it changes the whole way you approach it. Yeah. And even if you don't feel like it, put a smile on your face yeah. because it will make a difference in how you feel yeah. and particularly in how people react to you. Yeah, that that's so 
So true. I can see why you and Margie are such best friends. <laughs> she uh, she's such a positive person too. She and, is. Yeah, she she lifts me up quite a bit. And honestly, I'm not saying I'm perfect at having a positive attitude. Oh, yeah. And no. but surrounding yourself with people who can when you're having those hard days. Yeah. impact you in a positive manner. That is so important. I agree. So I agree. yes. Margie is such <laughs> a great person to be around, and I'm blessed to have her and you in my life. Oh, I appreciate that for sure. Um, so this podcast, it, 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 it's really fun and unique to do this with um, friends, family, and colleagues, or just people who have submitted you know, their defined yeah. moment. And you know, it, takes, it takes courage to come up and onto the mic and talk about it, so... Now, you know what a defining moment is. For our listeners, what led you to the defining moment? And what was that defining moment about? What was it like? Well, so I had a lot of defining moments that I could have brought on to this show today. But I felt very strongly that this is the one that somebody needed to hear. Mm -hmm. And it's not the most comfortable or easy one to share. Mm -hmm. But, you know... I did grow up in a, in a big family and, you know, I would say in a lot of ways, my childhood was pretty amazing. Yeah. I had lived on this street and, you know, we had lots of kids up and down the street and there was this empty lot, not right next door to our house, but basically two doors down, there's this huge empty lot. Yeah. And it was kind of like the 1950s. Like, honestly, we would meet <laughs> up, you know, in summertime, like, Everybody who was on the block, you just knew, like you saw somebody down there. It's like, Hey, if we're free, we've done our chores, we're going to head down to the field and we're going to play games together. So yeah. it was, you know, kickball and soccer and, you know, we didn't play the real rules of soccer, <laughs> um, but, but we played baseball and football yeah. and, you know, even during the winter time, you know, it'd snow and we'd meet down there and build snowmen or, you know, one year we had this epic fort battle where we built forts yeah. and, you know, had snowball fights with the forts. And that's just what our neighborhood was. It was all these kids growing up together. And yes, a lot of them were my siblings, but, you know, we had people all up and down the street. I think all together there were right around 15 other kids outside yeah. of our family. So yeah. think about meeting up with 15 of your best friends. That's pretty cool. What, Every day. What, you, you brought up the word chores. What kind of chores did you do? Oh, goodness. Well, during the summertime, we actually grew almost all of our own vegetables. Yeah. So um, at the beginning of spring, we would have to clear out the garden. Yeah. Um, and we would till it and we would make sure there were no grubs in it, which if you've ever done gardening, that's a hazard. And you have to kill <laughs> all of them. It's horrible. Um. <laughs> And then you'd plant everything and then became the never ending chore of weeding. Mm -hmm. Um, when you had <laughs> okra, you have to pick okra every single day. So a lot of the, the summertime chores was, you know, something to do with the garden. And yeah. of course, when you have up to nine kids living at home, dishes was like the worst chore you could <laughs> ever be assigned. And doing laundry yeah. so 
you know, but the fun thing was like, we would just sit around once we washed several loads of laundry, we'd sit around and fold laundry together Yeah, and we would tell stories and we would have, you know, sometimes my mom would bring out a book and read a book out loud while we all folded laundry together. And, you know, so those were some of the tours yeah. and, and during the winter time it was moving firewood and splitting firewood and, you know, cause like I said, our house didn't have heating or air conditioning. Mm-hmm. We had a wood stove and so there was really only a couple of rooms that stayed cold and there was only a couple of rooms that stayed warm and, yeah. and we would have to bring firewood in every day to heat the back room of the house. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really cool because chores, you know, I, I think of washing dishes and uh, doing laundry too, but you're, you're taking yours to the next level chores. You're <laughs> chopping firewood and bringing it in to heat the house, you know. Well, and lots of cooking, uh, cooking for, you know, 11 people. That's quite a lot. So so that took a, you know, we kind of took turns doing it, but I started really cooking when I was about four or five years old Yeah, and it may have only been one or two things at that point, but it quickly expanded. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you're, you grew up on the street. You had all these friends that you you hung out with. Yes. Yes. And you know, one of the closer friends was just across the street and you know, I, I love the neighborhood and I love that our next door neighbor had this swing set in his backyard. And I say swing set, it was just a single swing. <laughs> but one day I, I know I was at home and it was a Sunday and we, we took naps every Sunday afternoon after church. I don't know if anybody <laughs> else is like that, but, but every Sunday after church, it was nap time yeah. and it didn't matter if you were tired or not tired, you were supposed to go take a nap. Okay. And this particular Sunday, it was a beautiful day outside and I couldn't fall asleep and everybody else was asleep. Mm-hmm. So I decided, well, if everybody's asleep, I can walk outside. I can see the back porch from the swing. I'm going to go swing on the neighbor's swing. And, you know, I just, I loved being outside. I loved being around nature. And so I was like, well, if I'm not tired, I'm going to go outside. Yeah. So I'm swinging on the swing and one of my neighbor friends came over. Um, so I was seven at the time and he was eight and he's like, Hey, isn't your family supposed to be taking a nap? (laughs) Everybody on our block knew we took nap time. Right. And I was like, well, yeah. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I snuck out of the house to go swing. You know, I just wanted to do this. And he's Mm -hmm. like, well, you want to learn a new game? And I said, well, I mean, I guess so, as long, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be out here for too long. Yeah. And so he told me to go ahead and close my eyes and he would have a new game for me. Mm-hmm. And instead of having it be a new game, he, that was the first time that basically I was abused mm-hmm. and molested. And I remembered sitting out there next to that swing and just going, I wish somebody would walk out that back door. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I didn't want anybody ever to know what was going on at that moment. Yeah. And, and I just remember tears coming down my face and, and I don't even know how long it was, but eventually he finally said, okay, don't tell anyone mm-hmm. at all or I will kill you. And he said, and by the way, this was your fault. Hmm. And I remember sitting there and going, yeah, it was my fault. I snuck out of the house. 
I did things I wasn't supposed to, and then I let this happen. It's my fault. Mm -hmm. And I went back inside and I washed my face off and I went upstairs and I was like, no one will ever know that this happened. It was a one-time thing. But it wasn't. And pretty much every time we went and played over at his house, or, mm-hmm. you know, or even in the field, he would be like, hey, I need to go grab this from my house. Uh-huh. Hey, Mary, you want to come with me? And I knew that if I said no, people would know that something wrong was happening. And yeah. so I acted like everything was fine. I lived my life mm-hmm. in a total lie, contradictory to everything that was inside of me because I was afraid. Yeah. I was afraid of what people would think. I was afraid of what my parents would do. I was afraid that I would be killed. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an awful lot of pressure to put on a seven-year-old. And there was one day I just, you know, after going over and things happening, I just told him, I said, I'm done. I don't care. You can kill me. Go mm-hmm. for it. I can't live like this anymore. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, I'm really sorry, but it won't happen again. Yeah. And I said, okay, I won't tell anybody. Just don't, just don't let it happen again. Mm-hmm. And things were fine for a little bit. And then there was one day we were over at his house in his backyard playing and it was several of us. And I looked around and I realized he wasn't there. And I also realized my little sister was missing. Oh, man. And so I knew he usually messed with me in the garage. So I went over and I knocked on the garage door and he opened it up and let me in Mm -hmm. and locked the door back from the inside. And when I came in, my little sister was in there bawling. And I said, have you done anything? He said, no. Mm -hmm. And I said, don't do anything. Mm -hmm. I'll do anything. Yeah. And he held an axe up next to her head and said, I will kill her in front of you unless you let me do whatever I want and don't tell anybody. And I said, I will do whatever you want. Just don't kill my sister. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this is your fault. You told me no. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it went on for another couple months. And I, I know that I should have told somebody, but looking back, all I feared for was for my sister's life. Right. I mean, I had already told him my life didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And then he was using my sister against me. And I thought, as long as she's safe, this is okay. And one day my mom read a story out loud and, you know, she was doing this a lot. She would read things in the newspaper or books or magazines. She Loved teaching us. Yeah. And she's like, hey, I've got kind of a serious story to talk about. But hey, this this little girl was kidnapped and raped and murdered by her parents' gardeners. And I just want you guys to know, like, they found her diary and she had actually been saying that he had been doing things with her for months. Mm-hmm. If anybody's done anything to you, like, let us know. And my little sister spoke up and said, this neighbor kid, you know, who was just a year older than me. Right. She's like, he's been doing this to me. Wow. And I broke down bawling because here I was sacrificing my life, my sanity for my sister, only to find out he was still doing things to her or had at least done something to her one time. 
Mm -hmm. And so my parents knew both of us had been affected and they took us over and, you know, this, this was back in the nineties. You didn't talk about these things. You didn't deal with it. Yeah. But they made him apologize to us. And within, I would say a week, they had completely moved. So I was like, okay, I'm never going to have to see this neighbor kid again. Yeah. Life can move on. Yeah. And it did, but I felt broken and I felt guilty and I felt like I would never be a whole person again. Mm-hmm. Like something had been stolen away from me right. that I just couldn't get back. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing volunteer work. Yeah. Um, I actually started helping at Children's Church when I was nine years old. Wow. And by the time I was 11, I went back and helped with a program called Awana mm. and became an Awana leader and just poured my life and my heart into these girls who were struggling to figure out what life was. Right. And, you know, teaching them God's truths and giving them the opportunity to see light. Mm. And no matter how broken I felt, I knew that I could help these girls Mm -hmm. and give them something that they could hold on to for the entire rest of their lives, which is, you know, Christ and and hope in him. We talked about hope earlier. Yeah, absolutely. For me, the hope that is in Christ is what allowed me to keep living and gave me the opportunity to to pour myself into other people and give them hope as well. Yeah. Give them someone who would listen, give them somebody who understood where they were at as I was only a few years older than they were. Right. So I did that all the way through high school and then I went to college and by the time I was in college, I was like, well, you know, I know I kind of wear frumpy clothes, (laughs) you know, didn't want to be like, I mean, after dealing with what I did when I was seven, I was like, I don't want to be like wearing crazy clothes, but you know, wearing extra large t-shirts and like <laughs> cargo pants okay not the most appealing clothes even you know whatever yeah it was a fashion choice that should have died <laughs> but i was like you know i've never been asked on a date and and you know even as a freshman i was like mm-hmm. is this even something that's gonna ever happen to me right am i so broken that other people can see that you know is this why nobody's asking me on dates um But I I made some really good friends, Mm -hmm. and um, one of them was this guy, and I'm like, oh, pretty cute. Yeah. And, you know, at first, I was like, no, he's not attractive. And Why? You're just telling yourself that? I was just, no, I mean, initially, my sister was like, man, he's hot. Yeah. I'm like, no, he's not. And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) There's just something about him that I'm not really attracted to. Fair. And I was like, I think it. I was like, I don't know him well enough to feel like I'm, you know, he's a good person or a bad person. And just based on appearances, I'm really like, I would rather get to know somebody and know what kind of person they are at their core. Mm -hmm. And after a few months, I found out, you know, he played music at his church. Um, He went to his grandma's house, (laughs) you know, to his grandma's nursing home. And he would play guitar at her nursing home for her and for the other nursing home people. And Every time somebody needed help, they would just be like, oh, go to this guy. And I was like, man. Sounds he, like a daydream. He is. Like, <laughs> I mean, he, you know, and the, the more that I got to know about him, the more I was like, dang, my sister was right. He is hot. <laughs> I was like, it would just be a dream come true. Like, seriously, like I, I was crushing on this guy for years. Yeah. So, but like, 
my sophomore year of college, we were really good friends. And I was like, I don't, it's like, I kind of want him to ask me on a date, but, but like, there's no way he'd like somebody like me. And, you know, he's too perfect. He's, he's everything that a girl could want. Mm -hmm. And here I am like this nerdy, I mean, I, everything engineering, that was me. (laughs) I'm like every organization, if it had something to do with the college of engineering, I'm like, I'm there. I will lead this. I will take care of this. That was me. That's awesome though. It is awesome, yeah. but at the same time, like everybody's like, "Man, that's that's Mary. She's the nerd," <laughs> you know. And here he is, and you know, he was an engineering student as well. And yeah. I was like, "Man, he's good looking. He's smart. He's generous. He loves doing volunteer work." And wait, so this guy, he's an engineer major, and he's good looking. So you're an engineer major. So you're saying you can't be a good looking girl because. <sighs> You can be. And you're a leader <laughs> on top of that. So. Well, this is. I'm getting confused. <laughs> this is the perplexions that are my mind. Okay. But I I still just dealt with that guilt and with those struggles. And, yeah. you know, again, sophomore year of college came and went, never asked out on a date. And I'm like, okay, I will probably never be asked out on a date, let alone by somebody like him. Mm-hmm. And then junior year, you know, he turned 21. I was going out and being designated driver for my friends because I was not 21 yet. And I was like, well, I have no interest in drinking. Like, (laughs) that's fine. But he, I was a tutor in college and, you know, he would schedule meetings and then not show up for him. And I was like, man, you're becoming a flake. What's wrong? He's like, well, so-and-so invited me to a party. Yeah. I was like, dude, I'm not even in my head. I'm like thinking, I like you and you're blowing off like, yes, I'm tutoring you, but you're blowing (laughs) off our hangout time for a party. This is stupid. I can't do this anymore. And so (laughs) I told you I was a nerd. My idea of hanging out was tutoring. That's all right. That's all um, right. So I pretty much told him, I was like, I can't hang out with you anymore. Like if you're not even going to like take the time to spend time with me, Mm -hmm. when you set up a time to meet with me we're done. Yeah. And so for the next two months, I didn't talk to him. And then it came Christmas time and Christmas came and went. Mm -hmm. And usually we would like exchange guests. It was, I mean, we were friends like, and we really weren't friends at that point. I was mad at him. And (laughs) you know, January came around and and he was like, Hey, I really want to talk to you. Can we meet up? So we met up and he's like, I feel like I had been lost the last few months. And I started thinking about it over Christmas. And I realized the only thing that had changed was you're not in my life anymore. And I just, I don't think I can go one more day without you being in my life. Yeah. You are one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And I was like, well, you've made me mad and I don't think I want to do this. Yeah. You I've lost, you've completely lost my trust. And he's like, well, what do I have to do to win it back? And I was like, you got to do a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, we didn't really hang out a whole lot for a month or two. And then, um, he was like, Hey, I'd really like to, you know, meet up with you. It seems like you're holding something back. Like what's going on. I was like, well, here's the deal. Like you keep saying that you want to be there for me, but you Mm -hmm. don't even know who I am. You don't know my past. Like, yeah. And so we went and I briefly described, you know, kind of how I described it today. What, you know, my, 
my issues were from my past. And he's like, I don't know if I'm the right guy for you, but I do know that I will be here to protect you until that right guy comes along. And at that moment, I was like, man, this guy, he might be the right guy for me if he's willing to say this. And, you know, really pushing hard to win me back. I mean, I was just like, man, this, this guy actually is trying to protect me, trying to be in my life when that was what was missing. (laughs) And come a couple months later, we actually decided we were going to start dating. So July, we started dating, um, and it was long distance. And, um, at that point, cause I had a summer internship and we talked every day. It was ridiculous. The amount of phone calls we had and this was back when like you couldn't call until after nine o'clock <laughs> so he actually got a cell phone plan so he could call me at seven that's awesome <laughs> yes so he changed his cell phone plan so he could call me earlier in the day so that i wouldn't have to stay up as late because i was in ohio yeah so you know i was like man he's willing to spend money to just to talk to me like yeah. this is this is pretty crazy so yeah we started dating long distance and we agreed like okay we're not going to kiss for 6 months just to make sure that we're like okay with this cuz neither of us had ever dated before we're like mm-hmm. okay how do we work through this how is this going to work and you know a couple months later i'm back at college you know we're actually seeing each other in person i'm like okay like we're going to stick to this right and he's like well you know i Maybe like, like, no, it's important to me, like that we don't kiss for six months, like just to give us time to get to know each other without other things getting in the way. And he's like, okay, well, you know, all right. (laughs) And didn't seem all that committed, but he's like, let's do some things that, that, you know, build each other up. And he's like, um, something that's really important to me is working out. And, you know, he's like, I really want you to come to the gym with me. And so I was like, okay. I could probably do that. I hate the gym, but <laughs> I will I will do this. Yeah. And I was like, let's compromise. I love dancing. I will teach you how to dance. But I mean, at that point, I was going dancing either every other weekend or every weekend. What, what kind of dancing are you talking about? Ballroom? We're talking about hip hop? Um, Mostly like ballroom. So, two, okay. you know, I knew how to swing. Wow. Do um, uh, any sort of Latin dance. So... Um, I took about a year's worth of lessons in college. And That's awesome. So I would go two-stepping. I, there was a swing dance club that met every other weekend. And we had a group of us that would go out swing dancing. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I would just love to dance with you. So mm-hmm. I'll teach you how to dance if, and, you know, so you can dance. And then I'll go to the gym and work out with you. And so we started working out every day. And every time I would bring up dancing, he'd be like, well, we'll just learn that a little bit later. I'm like, it's okay. Like, no big <laughs> deal. And then, you know, he was like, well, you, you know, you could probably trim up a little bit. Like if you, if you started doing more cardio. So he said this to you. Yes. Oh, and I was like, okay, like whatever. He wants me to look my best. And, you know, he's like, you know, you're, you should be proud of your body. Your body is, is a temple and, a, and you should take care of the temple. And I'm like, I really don't care about that, but for you, like I'll do this. Yeah. And then it was well, I don't like your glasses. You should wear contacts. And I was like, it's mm-hmm. a little thing. I can wear contacts every day. I don't like them, but I will wear them. Yeah. And then it became, well, I don't like your hair in a ponytail. And could you wear your hair out for me? Cause I just love the way that your hair looks when it's out. And so little by little, little piece trend. by piece, yeah. 
I started changing who I was and how I was appearing. And each time I changed something as much as I loved him, and I did, I loved him. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of one of those things I was like, you know, I'm doing this because I love this guy. Yeah. And, you know, he's given me his love in return. Well, so we dated for a few months and, and actually we didn't make it the six months before we kissed. Wow. And I remember feeling after that point, like, man, we couldn't, you know, he couldn't wait six months to, to kiss me before I could like really make sure that I was okay with this. Yeah. And, but at the same time, I was like, he must really love me. Like he wants me to look my best. He wants me to be by his side. Mm -hmm. Like, and you have to keep in mind, this is a guy I'd had a crush on for three (laughs) years. Who was like the perfect guy. Perfect guy that never showed up to tutoring. That never showed up to tutoring. <laughs> <laughs> Just that one year. Okay, I'll give him a pass, I guess. Um, And so after a couple months after that, he'd asked me, you know, for details yeah. on what had happened to me when I was seven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as heart-wrenching as it was, I gave him details on exactly what had gone on when I was seven years old. And this was a guy that I, I trusted with literally the very core of kind of what I had defined my life on Mm -hmm. at that point was this brokenness, this stolen innocence, this, this less than version of me, because I thought, here's this guy who said he would protect me, Mm who would watch out for me. He loves me. And so he, I told him every single detail. And pretty shortly after that, things changed with us. And, you know, there were still the little comments about like, okay, you know, we're going to go work out. You need to work out for an extra hour on cardio. And then we're going to do weights for an hour. Yeah. But it became like, hey, you should come over to my house, like hang out. And, and his house, he lived with his parents. And so I was like, nothing's going to happen with his parents at the house. Like it's a safe place, but the house was huge. Mm -hmm. And one night he ended up saying, you know, starting to do something. And I was like, stop, what are you doing? Yeah. And he's like, well, you were willing to do this with somebody that you didn't love. So wouldn't it make it better if you did it with somebody you did? Mm Mm-hmm. And in that moment, my heart dropped and I, I loved him so much mm-hmm. and I wanted to feel whole and loved that I, instead of saying no, said, okay, just this once, mm-hmm. just this once. Yeah. And just this once turned into a year and a half of me slowly being pulled away from my friends, my family, anybody who might have seen that my life was not what it seemed. Yeah. And only the people who knew me from a distance would come up and be like, your life is perfect. You have a perfect Christian couple. We want everything to be just like you. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell people our life was a lie and I was hollowed out from the inside out. Oh, man. I had no friends, you know, other than surface friends. Um, I barely spoke to my family. 
I poured myself into working mm. because as long as I was tutoring somebody or helping somebody, I could keep the smile on my face and move forward and not think about how much more broken I was mm -hmm. than I had been ever been before. Wow. And, you know, at that point I was like, well, at least we're going to get married. At least we're going to get married. Mm -hmm. You know, he keeps telling me he loves me. He apologizes when things go wrong. Like surely we'll get married and this will all be worth it. Yeah. And, you know, by the time a few months had passed, you know, I, I'll admit, like I said and did some things myself that I'm like, I'm not proud of. But at that point it was just, I want to be loved so much yeah. that I'm willing to, to do this. And you know, that was my life for a year and a half Yeah, working out one to two hours a day, living this life, not going dancing, not seeing my friends. Really, the only two things that that I didn't allow to be taken away from me mm -hmm. was doing volunteer work. Yeah. So I helped start a nonprofit coffee shop in Stillwater. Nice. Um, so I poured, you know, that first year I, put, I worked about 20 hours a week at the coffee shop. Yeah. And sometimes I'd meet my tutoring students there. And then, you know, I, I would work. And, you know, I had to have money to pay for things. Um, with that many kids, I paid for my own way through college. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so I worked and the last nine months that we were dating, I was put on a 500 calorie a day diet where everything that I was eating or drinking was monitored. And I had to report by the end of the day what I'd had. I was working 20 hours a week in Oklahoma city. Mm. Um, my last semester of college on top of 17 credit hours of school. And I actually started having blackouts at school. Oh, man. Um, where I just get the shakes and then collapse for just a second or two. Yeah. And went to go talk to a doctor, and they said that I was probably malnourished. Mm -hmm. And I told my boyfriend, I was like, I, I, can't, I don't think I can keep doing this. I'm super tired. I, I can't work out one to two hours a day on only 500 calories. Like I'm burning more calories than like I'm consuming. Yeah. And he said, well, it's, it's all worth it. Maybe you should just quit your job. Hmm. And I'm like, no, I need to quit working out so much. Like this is like taking a toll on me. Yeah. And he's like, no, maybe just back off to 30 minutes. But I mean, you really need to keep the working out up because you've, you've progressed so far. <laughs> so, here I am thinking, well, I don't want to lose him because I'm not working out. Yeah. And we, you know, I still loved him. Yeah. And I wanted everything to work out okay. And we ended up, you know, going and looking at engagement rings and we had a honeymoon planned out. And we knew that we were just going to live a simple life and mm -hmm. things were going to be okay. And, you know, I, I was like, this is going to be the guy I spend the rest of my life with, which will make everything okay. Yeah. And that last semester, he started pulling away. He wasn't engaged in our conversations. Basically, the only time that I really spent time with him was when I was helping him with his homework. Hmm. And he said he just wanted to enjoy his last semester. 
couldn't he just enjoy his last semester? And I remember <sighs> thinking it was such a weird thing, but yeah. you know, he's like, let's go look at engagement rings again. So we went and looked again and it's getting closer to graduation and we were going to be in two separate cities when we graduated. And I'm like, this had better have all been worth it. Yeah. And graduation day came and went and there were some horrible things said that day to me mm-hmm. where I just was like, I don't know that I can do this. I don't yeah. know that I can do this for the rest of my life. And I started work about a month after. And the night before I started work, I was with him and we were looking at a bedroom set. Mm-hmm. Because he was getting ready to move to Houston and I was moving to like southern Oklahoma. <laughs> and so he wanted me to give my opinion on a bedroom set. And the guy kept talking to me about it. And we walk out to the car and he goes, You know, why do you always have to act like you're smarter than everybody else? And I turned to him and I said, Why do you have to act like you're dumber than a shoelace? <laughs> <laughs> and. <laughs> I still remember that. And I remember thinking in my head, why did I say that? That's dumber than a shoelace. That's the first time I've ever heard that. (laughs) All right. Well, it's the first time I've ever heard that and definitely the only time that I've actually said that to somebody. And he, I was like, you know, I don't understand why you're doing this. Like, do you just want to break up? And he goes, yeah, that's probably for the best. Hmm. And I turned to him and I said, are you serious? And he's like, yeah. So that was the night before I started work. And I get into work the next morning and I'm acting like everything's okay, just like I had for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my manager and I'm, you know, kind of excited because two weeks in Oklahoma City and, you know, first conversation, he's like, hey, actually, we're going to move you down to the city, you know, to this town on Wednesday. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, well, do you think you can do that? And I said, well, not. So uh, let me make a couple phone calls because I'm not actually supposed to move into my rental until Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, what the heck? Could could things just get any worse? So I pick up my phone and I call this lady who whose name I'd been given by a friend. Yeah. And I was like, I had talked to her when I'd gone down to pick out my rental, but I'd never met her. Like she was just a friend of a friend. Yeah. And when I had gone down to look for a place to live, she had told me, hey, if you ever need a place to stay, just give me a call and I'll, and come on over. <laughs> and and people will say that, but they don't always mean it. And <laughs> here I am, broken, unsure, and just finding out that I had to go to this town that I didn't know a single person. Yeah, It was about an hour and 15 minutes away from the closest person that I knew. So not somewhere that I could just hop up and say hi to somebody in the evenings even. And called this lady and she's like, um, yeah, I'll be out Wednesday, but just show up. My husband and my son will be there. They'll show you your room. Just feel free to make yourself at home. And so I moved (laughs) to the city on Wednesday and I'm like, okay, it's just two nights. It's Wednesday night and Thursday night. And then Friday, I'm going to go back to Stillwater get my stuff, move in on Saturday. And I'll never speak to these people again because I'm such an inconvenience. I'm not worth this. Like, that's the point that I was at. I I didn't want to even have a conversation with the people who were hosting me because I, I honestly was taking all my energy to hold myself together at work Mm -hmm. all day, every day. And 
I'm, I'm sitting there and I get to their house and, and they show me in and I go straight to my room. I already eaten. And I was like, um, I'm tired. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. So didn't meet the lady that night. And then the next <laughs> night we get there, said, hi, I've already eaten. You know, thank you for letting me stay at your home. I'm yeah. going to be gone tomorrow. Packed all my stuff up. So Friday morning, I brought all my stuff back out to the car because I'm like, I'm not even going back to these people's <laughs> house. And Friday afternoon after work, I go check out this house. It's supposed to be cleaned out so I can move in on Saturday. And I'm literally thinking this has been the worst week of my life because yeah. instead of getting engaged, I'm broken up. Instead of having this relationship that I have literally put my soul and heart into, mm-hmm. I don't have that. And I'm staying at some random people's house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, at least I'll move into my own place. This is fine. Yeah. And I walk in, and as I push open the front door, a cockroach fell on my hand. <laughs> and I just shook my head. I'm like, it's daylight. Like, you have got to be kidding. You you just, you have to be kidding. It's like, okay, it's one cockroach. It'll be okay. And I walk into the house and every door in the house was shut. I was like, this is the weirdest, creepiest thing. Like, mm-hmm. yes, I've already agreed to rent it. But it's weird. Why are all the doors shut? And as I pushed open each door and there were five doors, every single door looked like a waterfall. There were so many cockroaches running oh. down it and scattering on the floor. Mm. And I shut all the doors and closed my eyes and walked out of that house and just thought, I thought life couldn't get any worse. And now I don't even have a place to stay. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about getting some gasoline and a match, but no. Okay. Well, it was a rental. <laughs> I don't think that the, rent, the rental owners would have been too happy about that. Yeah. So I called the rental owners and I said, hey, there's a really big problem. There's thousands of cockroaches here. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, we'll get Terminex out there, but we'll call you back once we get them there and they'll tell us how long you need to not move in. And they call me back and they're like, well, they said they need to do two treatments, two weeks apart, and you probably shouldn't move in for a week or two after that. So probably four more weeks. Wow. I don't really want to drive an hour each way every day. And that would be staying at a hotel in Norman. Mm -hmm. And so... I pick up the phone and I call the people I'm staying with. I'm like, hey, here's the deal. Mm-hmm. And told them what was going on. They're like, oh, yeah, stay. Like, it's fine. You're, you know, you're easy to stay with. Like, just, I was like, well, I have to go get my stuff. Like, I'll be back Sunday night so they can be at work on Monday. Yeah. And I left. And for the next four weeks, I honestly stayed at their house and same routine. Got <laughs> there, said hi, said I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Oh, man. Never talked to them other than just that simple, like, yep, works decent. Yeah. You know, meaningless, like, formal conversation that went straight upstairs because I was crying myself to sleep every night. Right. And I remember being like, God, why? Why did you not let me leave? Mm-hmm. Like, I was supposed to move into this house on Saturday and I'm here for four more weeks feeling <sighs> awkward. Because I can't have a conversation with these people because I'm crying all the time. Yeah. And that fourth week, my landlord's calling. They're like, hey, the the exterminator says that he needs to do one more treatment. Can you 
stay out for one more week. I'm like, what the heck? Oh, man. And the owners of the house, you know, I, I walked down and I was like, hey, you know, is there something I can do for you? I was like, I feel awkward that I've been here for four and a half weeks. And yeah. I'm, you know, I keep asking them if they want me to do anything. And they're all like, no, no, no. <laughs> well, that night, they're like, actually, our daughter's wedding is on Saturday. We really need some help cooking chicken and making chicken salad. Yeah. And I was like, okay, good. Something that, <laughs> that I can do to give back. And as I started cooking and talking with them, we talked for hours over cooking. And, you know, they were really funny. They were really nice people. And I'm sitting there going, these people, they're, they're genuine. They want to be my friend. It's not just you know, Hey, we have an extra room. You can come in and stay. It's, we want you to feel comfortable here. We want this to be your home. Like when they said, treat this as your home. I didn't take them literally until I'm sitting there helping them chop chicken salad. Yeah. And you know, we're talking about their daughter's wedding and you know, I feel useful. I feel like I'm making friends and the crazy thing is like, they're like, Hey, you want to come to our daughter's wedding? And I was like, no, I'll stay here. And I'll finish making all the food. And in giving back, I truly was able to just hang out and talk to them and become friends with them. That's awesome. And, you know, everybody left for the wedding and I stayed back at the house and was cooking chicken and chopping it up. And it was in that moment where I felt comfortable. Yeah. For the first time in over a month. Wow. And was just like, you know, things could have gone so differently Mm -hmm. in so many ways. Mm -hmm. But by giving back to somebody else, you know, something simple, chopping chicken. Yeah. I felt at peace and at home and I actually relaxed and made friends and realized I wasn't worthless. I wasn't completely useless. Right. Which was all the things that I thought because of the relationship that I had been in and Mm -hmm. then the damage that had been done when I was a kid. Right. You know, I was like, these people needed help and I was available. And this was perfect. Yeah. And it took four and a half weeks before I was comfortable for that point. And had God not put cockroaches in my house that I was supposed to rent and made it take that long. Yeah. We would not have developed that friendship. Right. And I know without a doubt that God put cockroaches in my house so that I would make friends and not just friends for that next week, but for the entire time that I lived there. Yeah. You know, Almost every day I would be over at their house in the evenings. And if I got there first, I'd cook dinner. If they got there first, they would have dinner ready for me by the time I got off the rig. Wow. And, you know, they became my family. They became people that I trusted. Yeah. And, you know, they trusted me. And this this was my first realization that no matter you know, I, I thought it as a kid, but really as an adult, this was the first realization that no matter how broken I felt, I could find peace and joy by helping somebody else. Yeah. And even when I feel the most worthless and broken and unwanted and unlovable, 
if I open my eyes to it and open my heart to it, mm-hmm. if I start giving back, mm-hmm. there will be people and places and you know honestly my dog that fills that void yeah and that's one of the things that you know i feel people really need to know is even don't don't let those unwanted and unlovable feelings stop you from being the person who loves somebody else right be the change be the hope yourself Mm -hmm. because as you're helping other people you will start the healing yeah and yeah the second thing is there there's no greater thing that you can do than to forgive yourself yeah it is one of the absolute hardest things that you will ever do Mm -hmm. it was so much easier for me to forgive you know the kid from my childhood and even my ex-boyfriend i mean honestly that came fairly easy i could forgive them it actually took me a couple of years to forgive myself. Yeah. And it was at different points a day by day thing, an hour by hour thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes minute by minute, I would have to stop and just be like, no, it's okay. Yeah. I, I forgive myself for the things that happened. Yeah. Because I've been forgiven and, you know, I can move forward because I know that I've been forgiven of the things that have happened, mm-hmm. not just by myself, but by God. And yeah, yeah. that opens up that pathway to be the best version of me for somebody else. Yeah. And for whatever cause it is that I'm trying to help out. That's a, man, that's, that's really moving Mary. I, it, it takes a strong person to overcome what you've experienced since age of seven and the selflessness you have and i that's what i mean i admire you for that um i can tell how unselfish you are just by your interaction with margie with with uh, people i see you around campus with uh, and and with me you you've you've come to watch me coach soccer and yeah. you, you know you you played soccer but not soccer really played street soccer <laughs> but you came and supported you know, and it's not like the weather was nice. The weather was 100 degrees, too. It was sunny. Yeah. It was outdoors. It, it, it was sunny. It was outdoors. <laughs> but it was also hot. And I definitely appreciate the fact that you came out there to support and, you know, be there with me, my team, and, and with Margie. Yeah. And it just says so much about you with you, your family, and how big your family is. And you're still able to provide to care for them. You put yourself through college. Uh, and yeah, of course, and we're all vulnerable when we, we feel like we're quote unquote in love, you know, in college or just in, in life. And unfortunately there are going to be situations that, you know, could, uh, manipulate, you know, that, yeah. and that's unfortunate, but that's history. And you learn from history I do. Right. And you become better, smarter, more efficient, and definitely stronger. And your attitude says it all in your body language and your facial expression. <laughs> so I I definitely appreciate you taking your time to come on to the show and share with our listeners your absolutely moving, defining moment. 
Well, if you ever end up with a lot of cockroaches, you might just say, <laughs> what is God trying to tell me right now? <laughs> Call Tarver next. <laughs> well, that might be one thing, but... Leads me to clarity, right? It, Friendships. It does. Yeah. And it leads you to think outside of yourself right. and, and take that moment to pause. Right. So. Right. That's awesome. So for our listeners, Mary Bruce, how does someone get in touch with you? How we, how do they get in, in contact with you? Well, you can get in contact with me on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at Mary C. Bruce Music. And you can try to find me on Facebook. It's just Mary Bruce. Uh, just message me. Um, but those are really kind of the two ways you can get a hold of me. Yeah. Twitter? Um, on Twitter, I don't always check it. I check it usually when you tag me in something. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to check me on Twitter, you can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But no, I would love for people to get in touch with me and, you know, just let me know if this resonated with you and if you have questions about sort of how I've been healing and, Mm -hmm. and really moving forward. I would love to find out if this touched you in some way and if there's something I can do to help. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on and your positive attitude is contagious. Well, I try. (laughs) I truly hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have a defining moment or moments you would like to share, please reach out to me. I would love to visit with you about it and share it with the world on a podcast. Here's how to find me. Visit my website, www.definingmomentspod.com. Follow me on Twitter at Def Moments Pod. That's at D-E-F Moments Pod. Search me on Facebook, Defining Moments Podcast. Follow me on Instagram at Defining Moments Podcast. That's all one word, at Defining Moments Podcast. Subscribe to Defining Moments Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed listening to this show, I would be extremely honored if you gave us a review. This helps boost this podcast so more people can find it. Go out and be a positive influence today, every day. Make someone smile. My name is Wong Lam, and I approve this podcast. <laughs>